Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel of the good news according to John chapter 17. Let's share in God's good word together. I pray they will be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they also will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Our country has a unity problem. Shocker, I know. Our country has a unity problem. And if we're not careful, the church will too. If we take our cues from the world, from country. That's why it can never be as it is. You know the number one enemy of the church. We have one enemy. Uh, somebody said politics. It's very close. Very close. Uh, I'll, I'll tee it up here. I'll give you a clue what, what it might be. Ed Stetzer, who I followed a long time, and, and he's not even Methodist, right? He's a Baptist. And he uh, serves uh, as the dean and professor at Wheaton College, uh, a wonderful college up uh, around Chicago area. And lots of my friends have gone there. Uh, great school, uh, great researcher. And this is what Ed says. He says, too many Christians are fighting the wrong battle and warring against the wrong people. You can't wage war on people and reach them the same time. You can't war on people and expect to have a warm, loving, winsome witness to them. So again, what's the number one enemy of the church? It's division. It's division. It's always been division. And that's why you see this brought up over and over and over again by Jesus Because he knew what was coming. It's his very last prayer. He's praying for unity for the disciples and for you and I. Paul brings it up to the churches in Corinth and Rome, Thessalonica and Philippi. So isn't it interesting that the number one enemy of the church is, say it with me, division. And the number one most important thing to Jesus was unity. You you do see this. Around here, we take Jesus seriously, absolutely seriously. And I just want you to know as your pastor, whatever Jesus says takes priority over every other voice because he's my master, and we pray he's yours too. So in John 17, Jesus says this, I'm praying not only for them, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me. That includes us because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become, say with me, one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I am you, so that they might be, again, one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. Because if we don't, it won't. 
right? That's why the young people look and they go, uh-uh, I don't want any part of that. That's just like school, where the bullies win, right? And that's what they look at. Friends, if we don't love one another, the world won't believe what we say about Jesus. It really is that simple. If we look like the world and smell like the world, we'll just be the world. We have to carry the aroma of Christ, be different than the world. Quite frankly, to be better than the world. Not better than any certain people group, but better than what the normal world has to offer. Something that people could be drawn to. Something to believe in. Greater than what they've seen. So this is a recurring theme, and you know around here that we want to make sure that what we're talking about, that Jesus has talked about in multiple locations, right? You can really get off in weird rabbit trails if you take one scripture that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible and just run with it. You can go lots of weird places with that. So we don't do that. What we do is we look for patterns in the scriptures, particularly if Jesus talks about it more than once or twice or three times. So Jesus says this in multiple places, I give you a new commandment that you what? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, what you need to know about us in particular is that we are a politically diverse church. The likelihood of every member of our church voting the exact same ballot on Tuesday, November 8th is zero. That's not going to happen. Right? It's just not going to happen. We are a politically diverse church. In 2018, we had two members run for the state House of Representatives. One was a Democrat. Actually, she sat over here. One was a Democrat. <laughs> and one was a Republican. She sat over here. Well, that is to my right and my left. That makes more sense. So, but they were good friends. And nobody had a problem with it. They both came to church. Neither one of them ever put out a sign, never put on a button, never put out a sticker, none of that. Because that's not what church is about, is it? No. It's about something much bigger, much greater. His name is Jesus. That's what we're about. And so, recognizing that, not as a bad thing, but actually as a good, healthy thing, we recognize that disagreement is what? Unavoidable. It is. It's just unavoidable. And up until a number of years ago when the thunder came to town, it was super clear that there were two kinds of people in Oklahoma. Those kind of people. And that was it. You're either a Sooner or you're a cowboy. And that's it. Now, this is interesting. My house, right, where I live, anybody know how far it is away from Boone Pickens Stadium? God bless that wonderful place. <laughs> I'm 38 miles away. From there, I mean, that's, that's got to be perfect, right? Until I googled how far away am I from Memorial Stadium in Norman? 38 miles away. <laughs> now, when I talk about your pastor being in the middle, I'm in the middle, right? 38 miles and 38 miles. But I will, and some of you have been with me a long time, you know this. This is the worst Sunday of the year for pastors. Because half of y'all show up grumpy. If you show up at all. Right? Now, I tell you what. Spring Ford's not a lot of fun either in the spring. But Bedlam. I mean, it's tough. See, division comes in lots of different ways, doesn't it? And I learned this as a kid because I'm a preacher's kid. And I've been in church life. I've been in church politics. I've been in church fights my whole life in one way or the other. And when Chantel and I 
uh, we're given a great opportunity to start a church here. We're like, we're not doing that. We're going to close before we do that. I'd rather not be here than be a bad witness here. Absolutely. So we're going to do the right thing or we're not going to do anything. That's what we do. And I learned this from my folks. Uh, This is John and Carol Foster. Uh, They were married at Stillwater First United Methodist Church. Uh, My dad was the Christian educator director, and my mom was a Sunday school superintendent. It was a match made in heaven. (laughs) And there they are. But even before my folks got married, my dad was in ministry. He was super young. He he got his local pastor's license when he was 18. Started preaching all the way through uh, when he was at OCU and Southern Methodist University. And he would serve little churches, Lone Wolf and Blair and Calumet, uh, all these little places. And he was young. And he told me about a time where the church got together and there had been some rumblings. He didn't really know what was going on, but there had been some rumblings. And then it all came to a head on this Sunday. And on this Sunday, they had a fellowship event where everybody came together to care for one another. That's what fellowship is, taking care of one another. And one woman in her wisdom, she brought sugar donuts. I love sugar donuts. Don't you love sugar donuts? I mean, it's so good. And there was another lady... Um, she brought powdered donuts. And it just so happened that at the end of that church event, all of the powdered donuts were gone. They had been eaten. Not a lick of powder left on the plate. They are wiped out. You know what wasn't wiped out? Mm-hmm, the sugar donuts. And from that moment, that church split. No kidding. You had your sugar donuts people and you had your powdered donuts people, right? I don't know if they're even around today. But here it is, because it's never about the donuts, is it? It's never about the team, is it? It's about power, control, manipulation, getting your way, not getting your way. So friends, let's just just get honest about it. Disagreement is unavoidable. It is. Division, say this with me, division is a choice. Absolutely it is. It's a choice. I've had people tell me, oh, you you can't be in the middle. There's no middle. Yeah, there is. It's called love to people on both sides, wherever you find yourself. And the scriptures have been really clear about this for a long time, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, all the way back in the hymn book where it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Not in party, but in unity. And as Jesus followers, we have a specific responsibility to live differently than the world. We just do. We're supposed to be different. And Paul says this to the early church in Corinth. He says, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, say it with me, united. And the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me, Paul says, by close people that there are quarrels. Have you ever heard such a thing in a church? (laughs) From the very beginning, among you, my brothers, my brothers and sisters. He lays that on thick there. Like, you're not just people. You're my brothers and my sisters. You're, You're not to be doing that. And then he makes it super clear. He says, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul. Now, Paul is writing this. Or I belong to Apollos, uh, another good person who was trying to do the Lord's work around. And another place that's going to say it doesn't matter whether it's Paul or Apollos, God gives the growth, right? Or I belong to Cephas, that's 
St. Peter, or I belong to Christ. Can you imagine? In the very first years of Christianity, they were already arguing about who was a better Christian. Those that followed Paul, those that followed Apollos, those that followed Christ, those that followed Peter. And so you think our system is bad with you know, two primary candidates, I mean, right? Two primary parties. In Corinth, they had as many as four. And they were already split up, not in halves or thirds, but quarters. And so this is what I really want you to understand. People say, well, the church, you know, the church can't talk politics. We can't help it. It is who we are. By following Jesus rather than something else, that's a political deal. So what you have to know is that our faith is political, but it's not partisan. Say that with me. Our faith is political, but not partisan. No, it's much bigger than that. Right? Andy Stanley says it this way. He has a, a little book called Not In It to Win It. And in that book, he says, when it is more important to us to have our way than follow Jesus, then we've lost our way and our credibility. Right? We, we don't, the Christian church is not here to bully anybody. We're here to serve because that's what Jesus did. So in the first century, Christian was a political term, not a religious one. And we talk about this a lot around here, that in that first century, the first 100 years, 200 years, there were lots and lots and lots of gods. And Paul writes about it all the time. And, and when they're trying to figure out who's in the church and not in the church, they're like, look, you're going to have to give up you know, all these other gods and all these other temples because it's confusing people. So in Rome, you could have as many gods as you wanted. Rome didn't care. I mean, we care as, as a monotheistic religion, right? We don't worship lots of gods. But Rome was like, sure. You can worship a rain god or a sun god or a fertility god. It makes no difference to us. What you can't do is have a different king than Caesar. That you cannot do. And Christian said, well, we do. His name's Jesus. You can only have one king. So when they used the term Christian in Rome, it wasn't a compliment. It was something that could get you killed. Again, Andy Stanley would say, once the church relegated Jesus to the role of forgiver of sins rather than king of our lives, we opened the door to lesser kings because thrones never remain empty long. So Jesus, our king, our Lord, our master, was extraordinarily clear about our calling and behavior. Right? So, So Paul writes to the early church, in Philippi, if you want to get really super technical, there's no long I in Greek, so it would be Philippi, but I can't say that. Keep a straight face. All right, so y'all grew up in Philippi. It'll be Philippi today. And this, this is what Paul writes to that church. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Well, that would change the political ads, wouldn't it? <laughs> do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, that's who we're to be, value others above yourselves. Can you imagine... I approve this message. The person I'm running against is better than me. I mean, <laughs> in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of, say it with me, others. We, we're here for others, for the very transformation of the world. He says, do everything without what? Grumbling or arguing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine going into a church and you don't hear any of this ever Because we take our master seriously. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine. 
shine among them like stars in the sky. That's the goal, friends. That's why we say at the end of every service here, go out, let your light do what? Shine. Shine. Not be tarnished. Not be ugly. Not be smeary. Shine. With the goodness of God. And this is so important. Because Stanley says it like this, and it really struck me when I read this a couple weeks ago. He said, you have the freedom to choose whether or not you follow Jesus, but you don't get to choose what following Jesus looks like. That's prescribed, friends. Not what it sounds like, not what it acts like, not what it reacts like, because that has been prescribed to us as Jesus followers. You can follow me or not follow me, right? That's what Jesus says, follow me. Some do, some don't. But how you do that, he's told us that. And it looks like this. Everything, friends, without grumbling or arguing. All of it. All of it. Now, if you don't do anything else this week, try that one on. Right? Right? You're at Walmart. There's 45 people ahead of you. It's all good. Apparently, I need some more quiet time to myself. Working on my patience. Right? Now, here is something that I'm working on myself. I've been working on this since the summer. I've been working on it different ways uh, before the summer, but Richard Rohr puts it very, very clearly. And if you'll notice, I've written about this many times at the top of our newsletter, and sometimes my staff will go, you know, you've used that one. I'm like, I know, we haven't done it yet. And so here it is. The best criticism of bad is the practice of better. Say that with me. The best criticism of bad is the practice of better. The best criticism of bad is not saying, hey, that's bad, you're bad. That's all bad. See how bad they are? Don't hang out with them. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, that's bad. They need help. I'm, I'm going to come do better right alongside them until they learn what that looks like, what it is. We practice better, not better than, better among the bad for its very transformation. Right? So, I don't know if you know this about us or not. But let me say it out loud in case you don't. At Acts 2 United Methodist Church, we do not criticize or demonize people. Especially those we've never met. Can you imagine? Well, I don't know them, but I hear they're pretty terrible. That doesn't make any sense. We don't demonize people. We don't criticize people. And you know what? Neither did Jesus. You don't see Jesus jumping up and down on people because of their sin. No, he says you're healed. He says, walk. He says, who can, those of you, by the way, who don't have sin, cast the first stone. Right? It, so it's beyond me how any Christian could ever criticize and demonize people on this planet. Because it's the exact opposite of what our master said and did. You, you all do see crazy train running, right? I mean, this, this is not normal. It's not normative. Except that some version of division has been around always it's what the devil works in that's how he gets us he makes you think you're right regardless of what pain or harm it'll do to the world john wesley found this out early um, in the 1700s there was a big really cataclysmic fight between protestants and roman catholics Um, if you really want to just be depressed read uh, about how many christians killed one another um, in in europe Um, it's it's just terrible so john wesley actually took the time to write a letter to try to overcome what was happening between 
Methodists and other Protestants and Roman Catholics at the time. So July 18th, 1749, he writes this, John Wesley, our founder. In the name then and in the strength of God, let us resolve first, read it with me, not to hurt one another. To do nothing unkind or unfriendly to each other. Nothing which we would not have done to ourselves. Golden rule. Let us resolve secondly, God being our helper, because that's the only way we're going to get it done. To speak nothing harsh or unkind of each other. And he says the sure way to avoid this is to say all the good we can, both of and to one another. Wouldn't it be amazing that every time somebody spoke about somebody else, you just knew it was going to be good because that's who they are, that's how they roll, that's their character. Not just in front of them, but about them. And then he says, let us thirdly resolve to harbor no unkind thought. It's not even about your words or actions. Not even your thinking, friends. No unfriendly temper towards each other. Let us fourthly endeavor to help each other on in whatever we are agreed leads to the kingdom. You're actually supposed to work with these people if it helps others. Is there any, any, any doubt that Methodism with that sort of teaching and understanding and action would grow? That people would be drawn to that? So we do have a, a political agenda around here. We do. I'll own it. It's to love one another. That's our political agenda. And that is a political statement. Our political agenda is to love our neighbors and whew, our enemies. You know why? Because Jesus said to. Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6. Jesus says, I say to you that listen. Not everybody listens. But for those of you who will, love your enemies, Jesus says. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then he goes on. But love your enemies. Do good and lend. Come on now. I'm giving away my money, people, that I don't even like, I don't even agree with. Well, yeah, and expect nothing in return because they're not giving it back, right? But, 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 what we're doing is a lot bigger than what we're doing here. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of God the Most High, for he is kind to the, say it with me, the ungrateful and the wicked. That doesn't sound like a good business plan, but that is who Jesus says we are and what we're to do. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. A disciple is not above the teacher, Who's the teacher? Jesus. And so I, I get nervous. I really do get nervous when I hear people using Jesus' name to do things that he told us not to do. I'm like, I do not want to see that conversation. Particularly when I do it. <laughs> right? It will really stop us. We want to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, as my boys would say. Right? But everyone who is fully qualified will be like our master Jesus, the teacher. So friends, when we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, that's where the sermon title comes from, the preamble, establish justice. Yeah, we're supposed to be a part of that, absolutely. Ensure domestic tranquility for all people, absolutely. Provide for the common defense for everyone, both the wealthy and the poor. Promote the general welfare, the goodness for all people, and secure the blessings of liberty, actual freedom, right, to serve others. Not freedom for selfishness. Blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to our children. To ordain and establish this constitution of the United States of America. Yes, these are Christian values. They are 
Jewish values. They are monotheistic values. Should we be working towards them? Absolutely. Should we demonize others in the process? Absolutely not. Right? So again, difference is inevitable. Say it with me. Division is a choice. It's a choice. Again, Stan would say, we stand against alienating half the people in the United States of America by siding with one political party over the other. You do realize that as soon as you say, we're this kind of church, you've lost half of the people we're meant to reach, according to Jesus. And if you go over here and you say, well, we're going to be kind of this kind of church, because, you know, it's easier, right? It's like-minded, and there's less fighting. It doesn't have to be less fighting. That's a choice. Then you've lost everybody else. Who's the church for? Everyone. Everyone. The problem is we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, we got to work together. For real. We really do. We really do. And you might say to yourself, hey, have you not been looking at the news? It's harder. Yeah, it is harder. It is. It's not just me being older and like, it's harder. No, it really is harder. It is. In 1994, this is your curve, right? Right? Here's medium Democrats and medium Republicans. It's not that far apart. They, you, they could get some stuff done. Uh, I, just for fun, go back and YouTube like Walter Mondale and, and, you know, one of the Bushes. It's hilarious. They're like, what do you think we should do about the border? da 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 What do you think? Well, I think basically the same thing. People are like, what? How are we supposed to know who to vote for? You don't have that problem today. Because today, last week, it looks like this. Right? It's hard to get stuff done there. But we, we're going to live here, friends. As, as tense as that makes it. So from 2020 to today, we the church have allowed ourselves, allowed to be divided over masks, vaccines, and sexuality by choice, by choice, right? Friends, I will tell you, 2020 to now has been the hardest, wackiest, most bizarre time I've ever been in ministry in more than 25 years. For the first time in my life, I would get a six-page, typed, single-spaced packet of information from a, from a member who hardly ever came to church about how we were terrible, I was the devil, I was going to hell, and they had to leave the church because I didn't line up with their political ideology. And they had a laminated card to show me how I was wrong. I don't think they made it themselves. It's more like, your church is terrible, insert name, da-da-da-da-da, and go out to all these people. I've never gotten that before in my life. Something is amiss. It's called division. You can do it over donuts, over football. Well, one of us is going to have to start playing football. But <laughs> anyway, did you see the game last night? No, you did not. We did not show up. So if you are a Jesus follower, you are included in the we. You're like, well, that's not me. It sure it is. Because we are one body united by our Savior. Whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, we are members of one another. Individually, members of one another, the Scripture says. And when the pressure came, what was meant to be united in faith was divided by fear. That's all it is. Because fear sells. Fear motivates people. Right? We're supposed to be united in faith, not divided by fear. And a recent study suggests that we've become less extroverted, less creative, 
less agreeable and less conscientious since COVID. Because COVID isolated people. It separated us. We didn't have the community. We didn't have fellowship in the same way. Not just in church, but all, all kinds of places. And it, it has some pretty big effects, and we're starting to see them in real time. It is harder to work with people. They're less agreeable. It is harder to get people to do anything, work in the children's department, help out with the youth group, go clean up roads, be, be civically engaged, help with the Boy Scouts, a Girl Scouts, a Boys Club, a Girls Club. People are like, mm, nah, I used to do that before COVID. That's, that's tough. You see, in God's kingdom, friends, there is no you versus me. That doesn't happen. No division. There's no them. Only we, like it or not. It's just us, friends. We are the children of God. We are the church. And so Paul writes about it like this. He says, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members, we are treated with greater respect. Why? Because our more respected members don't need it. You're supposed to be mature. If you're doing all right and you're, you're fed, you're not supposed to get a bigger table. You're supposed to share. Right? We, we, don't, we should not have to honor everybody every time they do something. We're supposed to actually grow up and help others because they need it. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior members. That's how you get away from dissension, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. Government's role is to protect the weak. You don't have to protect the powerful. They're powerful. You you do know this. This is like government 101. See, the truth is for your good and the good of our country and the good of the world. This truth, this actually makes us a better place. Because Paul drops a truth bomb. If one member suffers, all suffer together. It's just the way it is. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. So Andy Stanley would say it like this. Our uncompromising devotion to our better king, Jesus, the one where we love everyone, will ultimately make America a better nation and the world a better, safer place. If we do it, if we do it, not just if we think about it. So what Jesus says and does is the answer. It absolutely is. And he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did he do that? Well, he died for us. That's why the cross is the center of our worship. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, say it with me, as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. The example of love Jesus gives on this last night of his life is to serve those around him. That's what he does. If you want to know what this looks like, it looks like this. Even though the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him, sitting right next to Jesus, by the way, at that table, and during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all these things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going to God, Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, tied a towel around himself, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with a towel that was tied around him. The master of the universe served, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because he was teaching the world how to survive, how to live in a more perfect union. So, friends, when we serve others, we create a more perfect union, as Jesus did. 
The good news is that God loved the world so much that King Jesus chose to die for who? All. For you, for me, for everybody. For God so loved the, what is the word? World, not party, not country. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, say with me, everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the, say with me, world might be saved through him. Much bigger than anything we're doing next week or the week after. So when the church becomes preoccupied with saving America, we've forsaken our mission. It's much bigger than that. When a church becomes preoccupied with defending its own rights rather than advocating for the rights of other people, it's lost its way. You know what you don't see Jesus do? Walk into town and say, you know, I've been mistreated. You never see Jesus do that, ever. He does say, that's not right over there. Let's go fix that, right? Let's help them, help the poor, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. So here's the thing, and I know this can be a little scary. Take an honest assessment of your faith, of your faith, not your buddy's faith. Are you willing to follow Jesus regardless of where he leads you politically? That's super important. Because if the answer is no, Jesus is not your Lord. Your ideology is. Right? Because Lord means king. Lord means master. And so if you're not willing to follow Jesus, regardless of where it takes you, something else is your king. And you just have to decide what that is. You know, keeping my family safe. Whatever it is. But unless you're willing to follow him, he's not your Lord. Refuse to alienate half of our community. We will not do it. We simply won't do it by siding with one political party over the other. We choose to stand with Jesus in the messy middle. It is messy. It is hard. It is tense. Where problems are solved, that's where problems are solved, rather than capitulate to divisive, broad-brush political talking points. We just don't do that. So how do you actually live this out? One, show up to vote. Actually, we do want you to vote. Vote. Pray to Jesus and vote. Be kind in line, by the way. You can even hold the door for people, even if they're in the other party. You can do it. I promise you, you can. And then, as you go through, say thank you. These folks are volunteering. They spend all day in folding chairs. Say thank you. Be kind. And then when they say, where do you go to church? You're like, Acts 2, because we're nice. That's <laughs> what we do. Right? John Wesley made it really simple for his followers. And these are good today. This is from 1774. He says, this is how you vote if you're Methodist. Number one, he says, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them. Here you do it. This is how you do it. Read them with me. To vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Yeah, don't get paid or pay someone else. You'll go to jail. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. (laughs) Can you do that? And then three, Take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Because that makes it really hard to be united, doesn't it? That's how you vote if you're Methodist. And then, friends, serve. Serve. Serve others as a way of influencing people for the transformation of the world. You know, when you feed someone, that's political. When you care for someone, that's political. You're showing who your king is. His name is Jesus. And he is the best king of all the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together as our King taught us. Our Father.
or in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.